Hi, I'm Ann Barker. And I'm Liz James. And you're listening to The Cracked Cup. Welcome to episode two of The Cracked Cup, in which we set out to discuss matters of belief and fail wildly. And different people in the church had written out what they believed. Mm-hmm. And they're all contradictions. <laughs> many of them disagreed with each other. Anne's disagreed with itself. Liz complains about how Anne introduces her. I did not say you screw up all the time. <laughs> I said, I love that you are not afraid to make a mistake. And Anne tells the story that she's never told in public before. You're leading me down the garden path to the scary story, aren't you? (laughs) So I'm looking at the show notes right now, and I'm a little worried about where the funny is in this episode. Do you remember that the original what you wanted to talk about was like 80% death? I I feel that you are mischaracterizing me. <laughs> I believe that every conversation we have ends up at death, but that Dear that's listener. not what was in the list. Dear we listener, just I removed there. a lot of death. I did not successfully remove all of the death. I think that is also a theological statement. You cannot successfully <laughs> remove all of the death and still be a human. Yes, but we're at like 80% less death than we originally had, although still, I would say triple the death of your average comedy podcast. <laughs> is is that going to be your new sticker offering? 80% less death. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to the first podcast four times under very different circumstances with different people. <laughs> and, and I've got to confess, every time I listened to it, I felt like I yelled at you for an hour. <laughs> I think we need some reversal here where (laughs) I do not do all of the yelling and parenting and uh, you, I like that we've started (laughs) off with you making the face. (laughs) So uh, for the listener, I like it when Anne yells at me. I think it's funny when Anne yells at me and I spent two hours like deliberately provoking Anne into yelling at me. And then I went back and I edited out any part where Anne wasn't yelling at me. So I do not wish for it to reflect Upon Anne, as though she spends all of her time yelling at everybody. That's right. I'm only 50% yelling and you have taken out the other 50%. (laughs) Let's talk about listener feedback. What have you heard from people about the podcast so far? It is so fun. This has been so much fun. People have been so incredibly positive. It is just making me so happy. (laughs) We had an audition A squirrel named Spruce sent us an audition video, which was a very lovely and hilarious audition video. And I will ask if we are allowed to put it up on the Patreon. I'm Um, I'm sorry. A squirrel sent us an audition video? (laughs) Named Spruce. Oh, she's like faking like she doesn't know about this. (laughs) It's true. I'm faking. (laughs) The DRE, that means Director of Religious Education at Westwood, where we just had the service, which was incredibly fun. There is a squirrel that does the children's stories. And so the squirrel sent us an audition video, which I loved very much. My son gave us very detailed notes. Anthony is 15 years old, for people who don't know him, and has an improv background. And so he had a number of really cool suggestions. And then I asked him, because, you know, some of my favorite podcasts offer terrible advice in response to, like, questions. And I said, you should write in because you have an improv background, so you'd have really great questions. You should write in with, with requests for advice. And then he gave me this look, and I realized, this is a 15-year-old. <laughs> I've just said, 
you should write your mother so she can give you advice. He's like, no, no, I've had enough advice for you. (laughs) I have another listener feedback. I got this wonderful text from Margaret and it says, so I think I found my new favorite podcast. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, that's wonderful. And then I replied, you know, nice things because why wouldn't I? And Margaret said, I put it on last night thinking I could relax and fall asleep to it. (laughs) Turns out I was laughing far too much. So I want to make um, a public apology to Margaret for disrupting her sleep. Well, good news, Margaret. Judging from the show notes that we have laid out here, it will be a lot less funny this time. We've taken your feedback to heart. (laughs) I did remove much of the death, which is probably good when you're trying to go to sleep. But all of the humorous stuff we've replaced with theology. So you should have no trouble dozing off from what I've seen when I look out from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Let's talk about the service where you came to Westwood. I want to tell the people about your service. Because if you weren't there... Liz told the story of her formation process and how she has changed direction over the years and the creation of the UU Hysterical Society. And so for anybody who would like to hear that story in Liz's voice and actual factual see her face, there is a recording they could listen to. But tell me how it was for you. I'll put the recording in the show notes. It was amazing. I didn't realize until I was writing it out how invested I was in getting to tell that story like we have we have a bunch of processes for regular so for those people who don't know I was in uh, the process to become a UU minister and then veered off into a different direction and the Facebook group was a part of experimenting to find out what other ways we could make community and I didn't realize till I put the whole story of how that group happened all the way through to where we are now. I didn't realize what an amazing story it was. And I don't mean amazing me. I mean, (laughs) amazing the way the group came together. And like every time I stumbled or every time something didn't go right, people jumped in and caught me and propped me up and helped me get the thing done. And that was really powerful like I didn't realize how much I needed to be asked to tell that story yeah start to finish and um people's response was amazing like so many people came to hear the service and I could see their faces most of the people didn't weren't a part of the hysterical society in the beginning people came as it gathered steam and so a lot of people didn't know the story right from the beginning that was really rewarding And it was rewarding to have a couple of people who were there among the original 12 Mm -hmm. um, hearing the story. It was just a really wonderful experience. I don't have anything funny or entertaining to say about it, except that it was amazing. And I'm really grateful to the people who came. We were really grateful and touched that you you let us host that service so that you could tell that story. It really, really moved a lot of people. One of the fun things for me about it is normally if I'm speaking at a service, I don't get to scroll through the faces and watch the people because, you know, I'm speaking. (laughs) I'm apparently supposed to be paying attention. And so when you were speaking, I was able to scroll through the faces in the gallery and see all the people in their windows. And lots of people, I mean, had to, you know, had turned off their cameras probably because they weren't wearing their best pajamas. 
Um, but I think most people put on their best pajamas for this service. And, uh, and I was scrolling, I scrolling through the window and it was really fun for me to see um, the diversity of people. I saw faces that uh, matched names that I've only ever seen on the UU Hysterical Society. Mm, me too. And then they were live breathing humans. They weren't just a profile picture. And there were some of my clergy colleagues on there. And you know, a sermon landed well. If people laughed and people cried, hopefully at the points where you want them to. <laughs> and I can say without a doubt that uh, people were laughing in the places where you would expect them to laugh and they were crying or moved, visibly moved in the places where you told tender parts of the story. It was it was a beauty. I really loved it. So uh, while we are discussing the service, I have a bone to pick with you with regards to how you introduce me. Oh. I don't know if you know this, but because you are my best friend, you have had to introduce me in a number of group settings. And when you don't have enough notice, you tell people that I am theologically profound, which is weird. And then when you do have notice and you have time to plan, the thing about me that you lift up when you are asked to say what is the best quality of your best friend, like the real strength that you choose to highlight is Liz is really good at screwing up. Liz screws up a lot. Liz screws up very visibly. Liz is totally comfortable with all of her screwing up. I don't know if you realize that that is the thing that you lift up about me. I, I am suddenly filled with this feeling that this is going to be the Anne is an old person podcast episode. Um, it's true. I think those two things, I should make sure both of those things are in every introduction. You are theologically profound. You have, <laughs> you think in deep and wise ways and um, good things happen because of that. So yay. But also <laughs> that is one of my favorite characteristics about you. Not that you screw up all the time. I did not say you screw up all the time. <laughs> I said, I love that you are not afraid to make a mistake. And when you make a mistake, you leave it out there. So old people note, I grew up in a time <laughs> where you wouldn't have released any piece of work to the world until you thought it was perfect. Huh. Hello, white supremacy and colonialism. So this perfectionism thing that, you know, if you were going to release a product or a piece of writing or you were going to speak in public, it has to be perfect because you don't want anybody to see you sweat. You don't want anybody to see you make a mistake. And mm. it means that a lot of really good ideas or possibilities never make it out into the world because people are so worried about what other people will think of them. Hank Green has this wonderful um, video he does about the secret to his success is to give everything 80% of his best effort. <laughs> and, and he points out that if you're trying to make something 100%, you craft it and craft it and craft it and you hardly ever release anything. And if you go for 80%, it's out in the world, you get feedback, and then you make a better one. And I thought about this a lot when I was editing the podcast because of the problem with the sound and because there's 45 things that I wish I'd done differently. And I was very tempted to call you and say, can we re-record this? <laughs> right. But I really believe in the you throw it out there and we all improve together piece. Because if you wait till you're perfect, you create a hostile world for everyone around you. So back to you. That's one of my favorite things about you. And I guess the reason I always tell that story is that it's meant so much to me for my growth. If we say something 
that maybe wasn't our wisest thing or just was a thing we didn't know and people jump on us. That can be a hard way to learn. You have a really gracious spirit where you come back and you say, ooh, ooh, I really want to learn. And then you leave the learning up there, which respects the effort people made to invest in you and help you learn. But it also demonstrates for other people how to not be so afraid that we back up and disappear all our mistakes. You talk about that as though it's courage, but it's actually a kind of defensiveness in some ways, because if someone corrects you and you respond with thank you, then there isn't an easy asshole path available to that person, right? If they say you shouldn't have done this and then you respond with why it was okay what you did, right? like pretend you're ballroom dancing, you're leading the dance part of a dance that is a tug of war. And if they say you shouldn't have done that and you respond with thank you, you're leading the dance part of a growth. It is a kind of almost like a defensiveness. Like it isn't actually courage. Like there are things I do that require courage that I'm afraid and I work it up and then I do those things. This isn't one of those things. This is what I have learned over time is the safest place for me. That's really cool. It also comes from... um, in the beginning of my life and through (laughs) large chunks of it, being a person who was chronically messing up things left, right and center. And so doing a good job wasn't one of the options available to me. And so I got a lot of practice at screwing up. And one of the things I remember at seminary, uh, we were in a group talking about sort of dismantling what you've talked about, sort of the white supremacist colonial, like the culture of we must do everything right. And a man who was sort of the archetype of straight, white, whatever. I don't know if he actually was, but exuded that stereotypical archetype of ministry saying, in order for us to do this work, we have to learn to screw up. We have to learn to be vulnerable and make mistakes publicly. And I remember looking at him thinking, that's a statement that comes out of being at the top of this pyramid. Mm. Because for this pyramid to change shape, I need to learn to be successful, right? I'm really good at screwing up. I'm very comfortable with that. And I need to learn to stand my ground and say, no, I am right about this thing, or I am the best person to do this thing, or I'm not willing to make this concession. That's actually the skill that I am weak at. That's when I'm being brave, I'm doing that. Screwing up is easy. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about what you believe, one of my very earliest memories of the church where Anne and I met was... I knew I didn't believe in God. I want to say I didn't believe in God in the traditional ways, but that's actually kind of a cowardly thing. I knew I didn't believe in God, period. I'm, I believe I could be wrong. Like, I'm not that confident in my own quality. I often believe you could be wrong. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but the question of what do I believe? I believe there is no God. How certain am I that I am right? Very, very low level of certainty because what, what information do I have? None. Mm-hmm. So... But I I knew I didn't have the right kind of belief for a Christian church, but I loved church because I spent a lot of time in church as a teenager and it was wonderful and beautiful. So we went to church and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, how much do I have to pretzel to be allowed to find a church that I can be in? And there was this wall where they said, what do you believe? And different people in the church had written out what they believed, which was really neat for me because I could find people in there that believed the same things I did. And it was posted mm-hmm. on the freaking wall. So, mm-hmm. And I they're all contradictions. And, they, <laughs> and yet many of them disagreed with each other, which I thought was great. 
many of them disagreed with each other and disagreed with itself, which I really loved. <laughs> so I don't remember what you wrote. I don't either. There's some fluffy, I probably I don't know. won't agree with it anymore either. It was some fluffy universe stuff. But what I remember is that the end you said, me from five years ago would have been stunned to know I was going to end up here. And that statement has been true of me every five years throughout my whole life, which I thought was so cool. Maybe that's, that's why we're so bonded. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on the five-year treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I, I've never wondered whether it's true for me. I'd be interested to hear from listeners, too, whether that's a true statement for you that you of five years ago would be stunned by who you are right now. Yeah, and it's not a forward-thinking thing. It's not like you plan to be different or like you um, expect to be different or you you know, you might plan those things, but it's, it's that feeling that if you told me five years ago that this is what I'd be doing today, I'd have said, no way. If you told me that I was going to be living on a bus with a herd of humans traveling across the country, I would have said, uh, no. <laughs> if you told me that I would be uh, studying to be a hairdresser, I'd have said, uh, no. <laughs> if you told me that I was going to be a Unitarian Universalist minister, I would have said, what the hell is a Unitarian Universalist minister? I did tell you you were going to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. You did, you did say, that's true. Hell? You just burst into tears. Liz was the first person to tell me, and it's true, I did burst into tears. It was great. <laughs> we seem really uninterested in talking about matters of belief. <laughs> Maybe that is not the topic of the podcast. <laughs> this is actually fairly st stereotypical of me, is that I began my religious journey thinking it was really important to figure out what you believe, that that was a part of religion. And the longer mm -hmm. I am alive, the more inherently bored I am with that question. <laughs> like, the more I think, oh, I don't care. Like... Why would that have changed? Like, why does it matter less? I think because in the part of Christianity that I was so involved in as a teenager, they emphasized what you believe is a very important part of how we sort human beings. And in the world I'm in now, it's quite irrelevant. And I've been exposed to more types of people who approach belief in different ways. Mm. Did I ever tell you the story about me pressuring Celeste to tell me what he believes? No. Okay, so there's someone in our congregation who was born in Masai Mara in Kenya. So for people who aren't familiar with that tribe, they avoided colonialism because they were very nomadic. So whenever white people came along and said, do things our way or we're going to catch you or whatever, they just up and left with their cows. Good they, work. Yeah. <laughs> they said, well, we see how this has turned out for other people. And because of that, 20 years ago or 30 years ago when Celeste was growing up, he grew up in a tribal setting. Like he didn't see electricity. He didn't see written word. He didn't like vaguely aware that these things existed, but completely tribal context. And he fell in love with someone who came visiting and then he ended up in Canada. But I'm always peppering him with these questions because I find his culture really fascinating. Like without a larger civilization, how do people work? And one of the questions that I've asked him a lot of times is what did he believe about God growing up or what are the religious beliefs of his tribe? And he would always dodge the question. <laughs> like, <laughs> so instead of asking, what do you believe? I asked him, why do you always dodge the question about what you believe? And he said, because it's language is still a barrier. So he, I think he used the word rude. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, we sound stupid having this conversation. Like, if God exists, God can hear us. So 
what would you think if we had a conversation about whether Bob exists and Bob was standing there listening? We look like idiots. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. And we're being rude. And then he said, and we don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea. And I don't understand why, given that nobody has any idea, we are wasting so much time talking about this question that nobody can answer. What a great answer. Which I, I found that totally fascinating. So it's experiences like that that have put into context for me how incredibly not important it is what people believe. But then I've also been thinking about what do you believe in? So if I say to you, I believe in um, universal healthcare, I'm not making a statement about what I believe exists. I'm making a statement about what I believe is valuable. And so that question I'm now fascinated with. So instead ah. of what do you believe exists, what do you believe is important? So God is a concept that's been a part of my life since, well, probably birth, because I had a mom and a grandma who were very religious people. So God was a given. It took, you know, until I was a teenager for me to really question whether that was even a choice to believe or not to believe. Um, it wasn't a problem. They were they had a pretty nice God. So I did OK. As I became older, then you start to question things more. And part of that is snarky teenageness, where you just want to question everything your parents or your grandparents believe. But I didn't have the same religious connection that they had. And so I was restless and I was searching. But I've always had this idea of God as a concept in my life. So I never questioned if there was a God. I just questioned whether their ideas about God were right. I've always believed in if there is a God, then that God is benevolent because I just can't bear to live with any other idea. And I know that that's manipulating the story to suit me. And that's totally how I lived for years and years and years. But then when I went through this philosophy class and now I'm looking specifically at, so how do I, I'm testing my theory. So I'm applying it to these things that matter a lot to people, because even though whether or not somebody believes in God might not matter to us generally in our lives. It matters to a lot of people. Do I believe in God? Am I willing to stake my life on it? Mm, nope. <laughs> nope, I'm not. I can't a hundred with a hundred percent certainty stake my life on, on their, the existence of God. However, much like your friend said in the previous story, if there is a God, and if that's a God that's listening, <laughs> am I, Am I arrogant enough to say that the God that's listening to this conversation doesn't exist? Hmm. When I said I'm all out atheist, I don't believe in God, that's not a statement about whether or not God exists. That's a statement about me and my beliefs. So right. I have tried very hard to believe in God and been unsuccessful. I am a person mm -hmm. who does not believe in God. I don't say that I am a person who has any wisdom around whether God exists or not. So there is a brand of atheism that's like, I don't believe in God and I am sure and here's the evidence and blah, blah, blah. And, I and there the is no God. That yeah. is the state of being that I am in is non-believer, but my opinion of my expertise is very low. Right. <laughs> so if you had to ask me what my core belief about God is, it's, it would be, I believe I'm wrong about God. Because pretty much no matter what, as a human being, my understanding of these big questions is going to be incomplete because we do not have smart enough brains to understand. So right. the thing that I know for sure that I would stake my life on 
is that I am wrong about all this. It is impossible that I would be right. I think that takes us back to this whole idea about, do we have to get it right? Mm-hmm. Because in my life, whether or not God exists doesn't impact the quality of my life. Whether or not I have a, an absolute certainty would impact the quality of my life, because then I have to be either right or wrong. And you've been teaching me to sit in the middle space. Is it important to be right? I, I don't think it's important to be right about this one. For lots of people, it is really important to be right. Some people have absolute certainty around this, and then that's a barrier to relationships sometimes with somebody like us who doesn't have certainty. When I feel like certainty in general is often a barrier, like in society right now, we have all these tug of wars forming. And we think Mm. that the solution when someone is pulling on a rope is to grab the rope and pull harder. And there are certainly times where it is the case where there is a power struggle and you have to try and win the power struggle. Um, I'm not naive Mm. enough to think the world doesn't work that way. But there are many, many times when the actual skill you need is to drop the rope and to be the other half of a different dance. You're leading me down the garden path to the scary story, aren't you? <laughs> when we were preparing the show, note, show notes, she said, I want to tell this story, but I've never told it before. And so I'm like dancing the conversation around this story because it's a like yes or no as to whether or not she's going to tell Can it. Can we get to it now? Can we get to it now? <laughs> yeah. You're going to uh, tell okay. the story? Uh, can I tell the scary story? Yes, of course. I'm going to tell the scary story and I'm going to ask you to listeners to uh, come at this with a spirit of goodwill and stay for the whole story and not form an opinion about me when I say the first sentence, except that you will. And I will still love you. I didn't vaccinate my children and I wasn't vaccinated as a child as a product of that religious upbringing. But when I didn't vaccinate my children, it was because, um, not for religious reasons, because I wasn't religious at the time, it was because I weighed the merits of the risks. So uh, I want to make a, make a clear statement right now. I hate the word anti-vaxxer. And you'll know by the end of the story why. But just, I know you're thinking it. So stay with me. So... When I looked at this little tiny infant baby in my hands and I had to make decisions about their health and their well-being, I live in a country uh, in a bubble wrapped in privilege, right? I'm a white person who was raised middle class, who I didn't have a lot of money, but I still had sort of that middle class values and experience of life and expectations of life. Um, I was safe. I had money, all the things, lots of privilege. I live in a community that doesn't have much in the way of communicable diseases. The big things, right? The polio, the smallpox, all the stuff. So I looked at what are the risks of a vaccine and the risks of a vaccine. And I was not a person who fell for the misbelief that, you know, that the vaccines caused autism and things. I was just looking at the straight medical disclaimers on the vaccine bottle, (laughs) right? The ones that say possible side effects, just like when you take Tylenol, there are possible side effects. So I'm looking at the possible side effects and some of them are scary, just like with any medication. And here was my perfect, fragile baby 
And I had to decide which was the worst risk, the risk of the possible side effects of the vaccine or the risk of the illness. And in my insular, self-centered, just me and the baby bubble, the vaccine risk was higher. So I didn't vaccinate my first child or my second child. I didn't talk about it a lot. I know it's a hot button topic. I would talk about it if you asked me, but I wouldn't have brought it up. But then one day I was having a conversation with a friend who is a physician. And we were talking about flu shots, I think, about the merits of flu shots. And somehow we got onto the topic of vaccinations. And my friend said, well, I understand that. I mean, it's probably a 50-50 crapshoot. In our circumstances, the risk of the illness and the risk of the side effects are about equal because there's not a high likelihood of either one of them occurring in these circumstances. Liz is holding her fa- her thumb and her uh, index finger very close together in the teeny tiny gesture. I'm trying not to interrupt and add to your story, but you have to mention You should interrupt, otherwise tiny. it's like a 27-minute monologue of me. <laughs> and well, it's better begin, when you laugh. To be fair, you began the story by saying, you have to listen, people. <laughs> so I thought that availed comment to me. The threat of illness was not imminent, but the threat of side effects felt imminent, right? We're going to put a needle in their arm and then it's possible there's a side effect. Whereas the alternative is, are you going to be exposed to this illness? In the book that uh, Viktor Frankl wrote about his experience in the Holocaust, which is an incredible book, Man's Search for Meaning, couldn't recommend it enough. Um, he talks about having to make decision after decision after decision that are life and death decisions for which you mm-hmm. have no information that are total crapshoots. And he said that he observed that it was far more painful to die or have a loved one die because of something you did than because of something you didn't do. So if they said, people, some of you get on this train, you were better off to stay where you were. And if that caused you to die, it was somehow easier. Which I found really that interesting. is exactly what I'm talking about, right? That it's way easier to risk something I didn't do than something I did. Well, I didn't want to take an action that could cause my baby harm, and I felt that was the higher risk. Then my wise being friend went on to talk about herd immunity and about social responsibility and how they understood that that was kind of a 50 50 choice, but they tipped towards the responsibility to the greater community. And he said that he would choose, well, he had did choose to vaccinate his children because he felt a responsibility to the greater good. That because it was fine, and he still loved me, it was fine if I made the choice that I made because it wasn't going to immediately have an impact in my community. But if enough people made that choice, it would have an impact in our community. It would destabilize that sense of herd immunity. So there are some people who can't have vaccinations because of various health issues. And we need all the people who can to do that. And I want to tell you, there's a couple of reasons that it's important to me to tell this story. And I'm sure you can understand already why it's scary to say it out loud, because there's a lot of vitriol around anti-vax. I want to say that not everybody who chose not to vaccinate their children is stupid, that not everybody who made this choice did it for some like deeply flawed thing. What I think of myself now is that I was 
focused on my insular family and not reflecting on my responsibility to a broader community. And I'd like to say that if I had to make that choice again now with a brand new baby, my brand new baby, that I would make the opposite choice. But I don't know when you just gave birth and the hormones are coursing through your body and you're holding that tender little bunny in your hands, if I would have been able to do that math the same way, but maybe my community could have helped me do that math if I was in community, which I wasn't at that time. But what I really need to say here, and I think it matters because we're heading into a societal situation where vaccination around COVID, should we get one, is going to be a really important question, is that disdain is not what changed my mind. When we were talking about this, had I responded with, well, gee, that's selfish, you don't care about your community. If your tender little heart can't bear the idea of stabbing your baby with a needle and potentially deeply hurting it, even though that risk is very small, then I force you to adopt a belief system in which those risks are bigger than they are in order to justify what you're doing. My hostility the, puts you into that position. Your hostility actually would have, the likelihood is more that it would have driven me out of community. Yeah, that's something that always amazes me is, and I see this in myself. So we were getting our information from the same physician friend. And we made opposite decisions. We both 100% believed the information we were getting. And I've right. always, when you have talked to me just in private about this, you've talked about how you didn't think about it as a community thing. And the story I always told myself was, oh, well, I thought about it as a community thing because I'm more community minded than Anne. <laughs> Except, good girl. <laughs> well, listening to this story really carefully because I had been instructed not in to interrupt, or at least I thought I had been instructed not to interrupt, <laughs> I started thinking about that critically. Am I a more community-minded person than you? And I think we can all agree that the answer is no. <laughs> like, I don't fault myself for being more selfish than you. That's just how I was born. But you are far more community-minded than I am. So I don't think it's about community-minded. I thought, well, what is that about? And when you said I couldn't bear the idea of my baby being hurt because I had made this choice, I thought, oh, I would have been far more afraid of going to friends and families and saying my baby is hurt because I didn't do the thing that is socially acceptable that we are all doing. So it wasn't that I was more community minded. The worst case scenario outcome was the opposite one for me. And that's why I made the decision that I did. And I hadn't realized wow. that until yeah. you said that. Well Listening to you talk took me a whole nother layer and recognizing that's what shifted is the thing I'm more afraid of. So, of course, I don't want to harm that precious little baby. Now in my life, I, I do get vaccinations, right? Mm -hmm. I, I'm signed up for my flu shot. I'm all in for the things. <laughs> but it's because now when I'm weighing the consequences of doing it or not doing it, I'm weighing what is worse? Is it the risk to me? Or is it the idea that I can't live with the possibility that I harmed someone by my inaction? Hmm. So you're seeing it differently. Right. But it's, it's in the thing that interests me, and this may not be true of future vaccinations, but it certainly was of our babies, is that one of the gifts our physician friend gave us was to say, this is a teeny tiny risk either way. 
So right. because we were new moms and there's hormones and there's lots of discussion about every single tiny, teeny parenting thing because you all want to be perfect mothers and you're not yet come to grips with the fact that you are going to make many, many mistakes. <laughs> you're just getting started. Um, we were so invested in this decision and him starting from the perspective of, oh, yeah, that that risk is so infinitesimal either way, really put in perspective the idea that how ludicrous it would be to allow our relationship to be damaged by this thing that in reality is such a teeny tiny thing. Now, right. that's not true on the larger scale. I understand why there are no physicians saying that in newspapers. He was <laughs> able to say that because he's talking about two people. right? So the gift my friend gave me was the unspoken beginning that told me he didn't think I was a bad person. Mm-hmm. So we could have a conversation. And I think that's something that's helped inform ministry for me is this idea that just because somebody makes a choice different than I would, doesn't make them a bad person, may or may not make them right or wrong in my eyes or other people's eyes. But being in conversation is more important than being initially in judgment. Sometimes people hurt us and we have to get away or it's dangerous and we have to get away. But but my friend was saying, you are not a bad person. Now let's have a conversation about the greater ramifications of this decision. And he was still going to be my friend, even if I didn't change gear. But the fact that he left this, this safe, open space for me to think my own thoughts and to reflect on this over time is what helped me shift. Nobody's disdain has ever made me change my mind. Well, when someone starts with, I think you're an idiot, it is very hard to be invested in the idea that that person's beliefs and conclusions are wise. Or that I even want to be in a conversation with them. Yeah. And I think that's a characteristic of our time, both politically, but Uh, We think about how people are choosing whether or not to wear a mask and whether that's about their own freedoms or it's about protecting other people. I 100% fall on the, my job is to protect other people and then to protect myself. If you're not wearing a mask, I'm not going to be in the same space as you, right? I just have to make that choice. There's a piece around the vaccines that ties in with the belief thing too, in that he began, sort of like you said, why does what you believe in God matter? Why is that important? And I had to answer that question first. And so Mm -hmm. when you said vaccine or no vaccine to your physician friend, the first statement was about just how important this is or is not, right? So he was not willing to define you as a human being by that choice. I think maybe that's why you don't like anti-vaxxer is because it implies that your belief around vaccination is a category that should sort you into tribes and your entire identity as a human being, which is a terrible idea. And you reject it for reasons of community that you shouldn't be unwilling to be in relationship with someone for something so small. I also think it's worth rejecting on the idea of that is a bad strategy. So people will often say, but you have to heap judgment on people for being anti-vaccination because it's so important that we keep herd immunity up. And I do actually believe it's very important that we keep herd immunity up. But I don't believe that heaping shame upon people is either worth it or remotely effective, because that's how you consolidate people against you. Right. Anytime we're different, 
I mean, we, we might take it down to math or to science or to philosophy or to a spiritual belief or it could be any number of things. But as soon as you draw battle lines, you've ended the conversation and taken out your weapons. And I, and I understand that there are some bad and scary and violent and dangerous things happening in the world. I'm not saying that if you are oppressed or abused or mistreated, that you have to stay in polite, friendly conversation with your abuser. That is no, the not at all. Absolute opposite. But if you have someone that you are interacting with, that you're hoping they will see your point of view, starting with accusations and disdains probably isn't the best way to do it. <laughs> you might get them to shut we, up. <laughs> you, you, you might. You might get them to yell. You might get them to shut up. <laughs> But when we get into the point where we have to start making decisions about a COVID vaccine, if that's an option, that's going to be such a complex conversation because we won't have years of testing and years of medical evidence about whether or not it's good or what its side effects are. Um, there's already people who are deciding whether or not they will take it before they even know the science or the yeah. math. They're standing only on a philosophical line. Yeah, I'm hoping that you like me enough already that you're willing to entertain this conversation and this idea because, because you want to say, oh, well, she's not mostly awful. So maybe what she's saying here could be valuable in this circumstance. I think that I would be stunned if people responded to this story negatively. And frankly, dear listener, you would have to be a total jerk <laughs> to respond to right now, story. Right now, I feel like I'm falling down the steps. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is only a total monster would respond with derision to such a vulnerable and real and courageous story. Just to be I clear, love you so much. Dear listener. That's really sweet. I do have a funny story to tell you that okay. ties to this, though. <laughs> So I have two sons who have not consented to be discussed in this podcast. Who we have discussed already multiple times. <laughs> that I did not vaccinate. And to the best of my knowledge, one of them still is not vaccinated. But the other one, when he was attending university on, you know, you have healthcare. Uh, I don't know if it's the same in the States. In, in Canada, when you're a student in a university, you also have the medical plan that goes with your student fees. And he went to the clinic and he said, bad parents, no vaccinations, <laughs> hit me up. He sent me this photograph of a tray in a medical office with all the syringes <laughs> lined up. So he's going to get them all at once. <laughs> He did. He got them all. I, I'm not entirely certain that that was an informed decision. I'm, I, I do think that perhaps that was irresponsible on the part of the nurse, but maybe she thought, oh, this is my only moment. This kid's he's going to change his mind. So I'm going to just give him all of them. So he had all that. But yeah, that was that was a moment for sure when I got this. Fortunately, I had already revised my thinking, but where I got this image of all the needles lined up on the train. It makes me think when you're talking about sort of that changing your mind and some of the shame around it. There's a hymn that we sing at church that goes, don't be afraid of some change. Don't be afraid of some change. There's a bunch of verses about rejoicing and stuff. 
And when my kids were little, one of them referred to that as the song from church we sing about poop. And I, <laughs> and I said, like, what do you mean? And they thought we were singing about how when you poop your pants and you recognize there's poop in your pants, but instead of like going and getting it changed, you just try and hide that there's poop in your pants because you don't want anybody to know. This is a very bad story. No, but it's like a metaphor because that kind of is what it's about. That if you realize you need to change, like trying to hide it just makes the situation worse. It won't be imp- I think it's an excellent metaphor. I, I think that's a beautiful summary of what we've been talking about. This idea that that first of all, we learn about change in community, but also that we learn that if you're afraid of something, you tend to bury it and hide it. Even to question truly is an answer. No, it's not. (laughs) I was baiting her. (laughs) I know you were. (laughs) But what's wrong with that statement? And I'm genuinely asking because it's always been one of my favorite ones. Because it makes sense to me. Tell me why it makes sense to you. So when I think about a thing... I don't define a thing by what is the thing. I define the thing by do we use it like that thing? So what I mean is when my dad was talking to me about um, intelligence in computers, he said it's very hard to teach a computer to look at a whole bunch of pictures of things and sort them into chairs and not chairs because you can get all the usual ones, but the real answer to what's a chair or not a chair is, is that a thing that we sit on as a culture? And so... When I'm thinking even to question truly as an answer, I'm thinking of the word answer as defined by how we use it. So what I'm saying is a good question can be used in the way that people typically use answers. That's why I think it makes sense. And now the counsel for the prosecution. One of the superpowers of Unitarian Universalism is that it's okay to question. Mm -hmm. So let me go on the record. Your Honor, (laughs) as saying that absolutely to question, I I have 100% belief, (laughs) I would stake my life on the fact that you can't have health in a community in a relationship over the long term where nobody is allowed to question. That's a dictatorship, and I'm just not going there. One of the sticky places for Unitarian Universalists is that sometimes we get more invested in the questions and don't do the work further than that. So if I was to say to you, that's an interesting question, whether or not to vaccinate the children, we could spend hours discussing and debating and questioning which would be the right choice. But at some point in this case, it's important that there be an answer. Hmm. And so the questioning itself, if all we do is question, then it feels like we might be avoiding some of the answers. So I love that we question and to question can be an answer. It could just be to say back to the like, is there a God? You know, I don't know. I can't. I I don't think so, but I can't swear there isn't. And that's a that's a good question that we could ruminate on. Mm. But sometimes you need to get to an answer. I expect that those times are probably where there is social responsibility, where there is a justice issue, where we need to shift from, does this suit me to 
how does this care for the broader community or the world or the planet? How does this defeat systems of oppression? How do we change things? So asking the question is important because if you don't get to ask any questions, you just accept the status quo. But if you don't ever get to any answers, then nothing changes. And the answers aren't always right. We might try a lot of things before we find an answer that holds. Hmm. But never answering is a challenge. It's a common joke. There are a lot of question mark jokes about Unitarian Universalism, like Christians have a cross, <laughs> we have a question mark. Fair to say that your vision would be that we need a spectrum of punctuation that we apply as needed. <laughs> and to say even the question truly is an answer implies that the question mark is the end of the paragraph. Yes. I'm more of an ellipse girl. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay, I'm really glad you defined that because I don't know what an ellipse is. And I have a modern English. <laughs> when this podcast drops, mm -hmm. see, I learned a word. Yeah, I'm learning that word now um, too from you. It will be November. Mm -hmm. And November is going to be a really complicated month for a lot of our listeners. Yeah. What if we just closed with some kind of love before we get to the the announcements and the blessings and the good stuff there? But what if we just tell our friends in the United States that we love them and we're thinking about them and we know that there's a lot going on and no matter what happens or how messy it gets and we appreciate the pain that you're going through in so many different ways that we just want you to know that we're thinking about you and we love you yeah. and we want all the best for you. And whatever happens in November, it's not the last chapter of the story. Right. There's more coming. There's a whole spectrum of punctuation and whatever it is, it will be a dot, dot, dot. And there will be more parts after that. And now, a Cracked Cup blessing. They've got God, and I've got no God. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying they have a thing and I don't. I'm saying they have a thing and I have a different thing. I'm saying there are as many no-gods as there are gods, and let me tell you about mine. My no-god is endlessly practical. She wears comfortable shoes and a fanny pack stocked with all kinds of things, but not everything you'll need. A promise of everything you'll need in a world where people starve to death is a message as tippy and false and tall as four-inch heels. No God is done with that kind of push-up bra control top pantyhosey message. She will not tell you that everything happens for a reason, no matter how great your need. No matter if you are standing at the kitchen sink in the harsh light of sunrise with a morning after dryness in your chest from a night overrun with a forest fire of grief. No matter if you are ashy and tender inside like you could blow away, no God would not tell you that all will be well. She would not make that kind of judgment call. Instead, she would tell you that what you have is what you have, and even when you are ashy and tender and blowing away, the sunrise is a miracle and you can look up and see it if you want. No God does believe in miracles. In a world with sunrises and babies and leaves that turn color, how could she not? 
No god doesn't bother with makeup, of course, because it changes the way the wind off the ocean feels against her skin. Sunscreen, sure, because no god believes in cancer and in bad things happening to good people and in mortality. No god does not believe in an afterlife, so she doesn't have to be distracted by packing for it. Instead, she pays attention to what's in front of her because she loves being alive, like life is an orange plucked straight from the tree. When no god eats the orange, she is as messy as a two-year-old's hug after breakfast, sticky everywhere. No god knows you can juice oranges, of course, and sip them delicately out of pretty glasses, but she will have none of that. She is not an orange vampire taking just the parts that slide smoothly into stemware. She is not in the business of sorting living things into piles. No god throws nothing away. She doesn't believe in a way. Only in other types of here. No god is a chewer of things, and oranges are no exception. She wants the feel of the pulp on her tongue and the fiber in her belly. She wants the mess on her cheeks, a stickiness that she can wear like laugh lines or a memoir, that announces to the world, I ate an orange today, how lucky am I? She wants to peel it herself too, so she can be there for that satisfying moment when the smooth pores yield under her nail and invite her in, so she can watch the way the tiny bits of orange mist shoot up into the air like fireworks. She wants to feel the mist land softly on the skin of her hands, where she will carry the memory of it with her all day. When no god eats the orange, she saves the peels. She will dry them and mix them with flower petals to carry the smell of summer through the winter. She'll save the seeds, too, because seeds are the closest thing to heaven that she knows. Infinite life in a finite world. And they fit in her fanny pack. No god may or may not have created the orange tree. She can't be certain because she can't remember back that far, and neither can you, so she's not sure what the point is of discussing it all. No god is deeply practical. The orange trees are here now, and they're beautiful, and that's enough for her. And she loves them, and she loves you, but not in a personal, promise-making kind of way. This is not a proposal. She's not down on one knee. She doesn't tell you she has a specific plan for your unfolding, sheltered in her love. She prefers to stick to the plain facts, and the plain facts are these. You do not need love from God or from no God, because love is a thing sown into your cells like the trees and fruit are sown into the cells of the orange seed. Humans cannot help but love, and they cannot help but be loved. When there is not a God to love us, we find one another, and we offer, and we receive, and we unfold, and we struggle, and we hang on for dear life, and it is peels and pulp flying everywhere, and it's beautiful, and you don't need to worry about whether you can do it, because the truth is, you can do nothing else. The scent of loving and being loved is all over your hands like orange mist, and you will smell it when you raise your hand to brush the hair out of your eyes, which you should because the world is worth seeing. There is planting to be done. There are seeds, saved in a fanny pack, now being pressed into your sticky, love-scented palm with the simplest and most honest of benedictions, which is, here, I save these for you. For you. To care.
carry in your pocket like rosary beads until the right piece of ground appears between your toes like an unresolved cord and you feel life opening for more life. And you crouch down and whisper those seeds into the earth, saying, Here, I saved these for you. You've been listening to the Cracked Cup Podcast, a Mirth and Dignity production. If you liked our podcast, we would appreciate it so much if you would give us a rating and maybe even review, and we would especially appreciate it if you would recommend us to a friend. We'd love to hear from you, whether you have a question or a comment or a comment masquerading as a question. You can email us at uuhystericalsociety at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website at crackedcuppodcast.com. If you liked the podcast, you might like to attend a service some Sunday morning. Our next service is on November 8th, and the Zoom link will be in the show notes. If you're wondering about this Facebook group we keep mentioning, there's a link to that in the show notes as well. And a huge thank you to the UU Funding Program for funding the first 10 episodes of our podcast, and also a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters who are joining with us and supporting our vision of having this podcast last even beyond those first 10 episodes. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash mirthanddignity. And the first 30 supporters to sign up will get a very exciting present, as well as the ongoing access to the fun bonus stuff that all our Patreon supporters get. If you'd like to use the blessing from this month's podcast in a worship or in your own creative endeavors, you're more than welcome to do that, ideally with attribution in the form of a shout out to our podcast or website. All of our materials are licensed under the Truth Will Not Hold Still licensing, which we invented, and which means that not only are you free to use our stuff, you are free to modify our words to suit new contexts and understandings as language evolves over time. Music for the Cracked Cup podcast is done by Blue Dot Sessions, and production is done by the saintly and talented Adrian Muhajirin, and audio interference is managed by Simba the Cat. We are so grateful that you could join us.